Yeah, I can think of no more apt figuration for the perceptual challenge of the Anthropocene than George Eliot's proposal in Middlemarch that we might adapt our self-serving, inattentive habits in order to hear, quote, the roar on the other side of silence. I want to defend realism as a means of imagining and indicting the whirling of climate crisis and the entanglements of capital, bodies, matter, and energy that concern Anthropocene criticism. The resource of realism, and especially of omniscient perspective and narrative for documenting the expansive timescales and weird objects of environmental crisis, have been underestimated. If our task at this moment is to, quote, think on multiple scales at once, or to think more systemically, to quote Deepesh Chakrabarti and Ursula Heisen, major figures in Anthropocene criticism, I think realist narrative can play an important role. If we take realism not as the deceptive production of a world that affirms a conservative, anthropocentric empiricism, but as a genre that constantly reflects upon its own procedures for securing concrete knowledge and questions the limitations of situated knowledge, its capacity to make crisis perceptible becomes clearer. To abandon realism is to refuse a complex tool for theorizing how individual consciousness works to grasp multiple scales of time in which histories and populations converge, even if a compellingly total image may not cohere. In advocating realism as a means of accessing and assessing large-scale phenomena, sometimes asserted to be perceptually evasive, I push both against an anti-realism bias and eco-criticism, as well as a tendency in recent defenses of realist fiction to avoid engagement with ecological crisis. My talk today has three parts. I will first discuss the relationship between realism and scale before examining temporal dislocations in two exemplary realist accounts of flood, George Eliot's The Mill on the Floss, 1860, and Amitav Ghosh's The Hungry Tide. In these novels, conditions exacerbated by human intervention render long-term crises as immediate emergencies in which the narrating moment becomes protracted, suggesting that compression, dilation, and expansion are some of the mental procedures by which the realist novel makes perceptible, seemingly inaccessible scales of experience. Willfully reading Ghosh's novel against his own recent claims about realist form, more on that in a moment, I highlight the significant affordance of the form he does not consider, but which his own fiction powerfully explores. With Anahid Narcessian, I would contend that what she calls catastrophe form might have less to do with the rendering of event than with the rendering of the stance that can or cannot produce an account of the event. A literary form for catastrophic thinking might particularly explore how and when to inhabit a stance toward that which evades standard procedures for knowing. And one of realism's signatures, I will argue, is its processual perspectival account of the production of knowledge and the sensations and affects that attend the effort of coming to know. So part one, scalar realism. The problem of thinking scale has become a central challenge in eco-criticism. How can we render perceptible events that exceed what we normally think of as accessible to individual consciousness? What, in other words, is the political conscious of the Anthropocene? Public discourses in the popular press propose, quote, being realistic about climate crisis as a way of rendering it thinkable and, and real against those who persist in calling it fiction. Um, but this tends to present the Anthropocene as a managerial challenge that can be squared with everyday bourgeois experience given the right framework, like Al Gore's realistic hope, which risks implying, in Alan Stokel's words, that there is some possible, quote, calculation of the true and total cost of things that would authorize appropriate levels of consumption and development. McGurl, along with other critics ranging from Donna Haraway, Timothy Morton, and Ursula Heisen, turned to the sense-making category of genre. They often celebrate science fiction or the Gothic and reject the claims of realism, particularly the so-called high realism of 19th century Britain, as the politically suspect genre of bourgeois materialism. 
implicitly or explicitly. Such critics imply that realism enacts an unreflective individualistic empiricism of the kind described by Ian Watt in his Rise of the Novel. Frederick Jameson, writing in the 80s, describes realism's mode of making knowledge as depicting a neatly partitioned, quote, gray world of quantity and extension, the merely measurable. Realism fits the world to the scale of individual consciousness, at the same time valorizing the individual human mind for its capacity to make that world. Noting the difficulty with which consciousness grapples with the immense scale, duration, and complexity of, quote, history itself, unquote, Jameson thus emphasizes realism's false confidence in its supposedly total picture of world systems. Amitav Ghosh makes a not dissimilar claim in his much more recent The Great Derangement of 2016. He claims that the realist novel's incapacity to compass the unpredictable event demonstrates his anthropocentric commitments. It cannot accommodate, he writes, forces of unthinkable magnitude that create unbearably intimate connections over vast gaps in time and space, end quote, due to its emphasis on the everyday details that, he says, conceal the exceptional events that constitute evidence of the Anthropocene. In making this argument, Ghost relies heavily on the idea that the novel's reality effect depends on what he terms filler, a term he derives primarily from Franco Moretti's data-driven approach. The very gestures by which the realist novel conjures up reality, Ghost writes, are actually a concealment of the real. But we could also perhaps see him responding to something like Ian Duncan's claim that there is a, quote, customary dimension to realist fiction involving repetition and habituation as that which produces the effects of continuity and consistency that knit together an intelligible, familiar world and our identity in it, reinforcing and reinventing the received version of reality. But we need not take realism as the deceptive reproduction of a world fitted to our desires, but in its commitment to everyday experience structurally undermines whatever systemic social critique it might pose. If only event or plot were constitutive of the real in realism, we may indeed have a problem, and I'll discuss this issue further in a little while. But do we really read realism only for its events? Ghosh seems to assume so, whereas he thinks that once new hybrid forms emerge to capture the Anthropocene, the act of reading itself will change. But within novels, especially those which thematize reading, even on the most conservative view of what critical reading picks up on, events don't stand on their own, for they depend upon the mode of perception that constitutes events, modes that in turn depend in part upon the scale and scope of perception in the first place. And in fact, realism and its theorists, Duncan included, have been positioning the form as a means of thinking scale well along, even as they understand it as rendering some kind of common construction of the material basis for the conditions of life. The representativeness of individual consciousness within historical time has long been a major flashpoint in debate about the affordances of realism. In Georg Lukács' account of the historical novel, for instance, the individual life, initially only metonymically attached to the stream of history from which the self is alienated, ultimately becomes a synecdoche or allegory for the social totality which it expresses through the self's representativeness. This is certainly a claim or a worry about the scalability of individual experience. Building on Lukács, though, Amanda Anderson describes realism as presenting, quote, a representative social totality at a particular historical moment, focusing on the ways the emergent conditions of modernity are affecting psychological, moral, and social life. Such a definition allows for the possibility of disjuncture of scales, the scale that allows for the analysis or perception of that totality, and multiple experiential scales of both individual and collective life, and not necessarily only the life of human beings. I argue that we recover the scale of potential of realism for thinking environmental crisis if we consider the role scale plays in realism's deployment of what we usually call subjectivity, 
If we consider the centrality of realism's concern with the making of knowledge as the interface between stance, situation, and perception, I'll argue that understood in this way, realism affords a set of protocols for thinking the relation among scales of being and knowing, as well as for positioning that thinking as a lived experience. Put differently, Gauche contends that the long durée is not the territory of the novel, and that, in his words, within the mansion of serious fiction, no one will speak of how the continents were created, nor will they refer to the passage of thousands of years. But actually, his characters themselves quite often do. Even if he and other realists portray no particular form of situated knowledge as fully adequate to producing a total image of the lingerie, realism can move among scales, registering particular modes of thought while also thinking through the conditions that elicit them. This works especially by highlighting divergent temporalities of thought. Harry Shaw suggests that realism involves a movement between positions in and above a given historical moment in order to insist that certain mental procedures are needed to make sense of those substantial aspects of the world it selects as significant, and that what is selected depends on the relation to a sense of historical time. Ayelet and Nishagin builds on Shaw to argue that while the realist novel works to create a sense of epistemological commonality, a sense that a known community shares objects of knowledge that can agree be agreed upon to be stable or objectively existent, it builds up that commonality over time. Anderson offers a consonant and likewise process-based understanding. In its complex representation of historical situatedness, realism oscillates between systems-level perspectives and practice, sociological, impersonal, and political, that exceed the domain of the individual, and those that are marked as personal and moral. Moreover, it reflects upon what can feel like what she calls a structural gap between these modes of thought, allowing their inassimilability, demanding modes of thought incommensurable with the heroic human subject who might bring all vastness within the realm of his own mind. A related oscillation features in Jameson's recent Antinomies of Realism, which offers a more phenomenological account of novelistic time than his prior work. He argues that realism involves a constitutive tension between a sense of the eternal present, in which new feelings and experiences are registered, and a more structured, Lukashian temporality that envisions the collective destiny of some geopolitical group. While either temporality can generate a sense of excessive scale, in the former case something akin or alternative to the all-encompassing grandeur of the sublime, and in the latter case something more like a chronicle, a history, or a report, Jameson is getting at the plurality of rhythms that might ostensibly measure the same stretch of time. For these critics, coming from different traditions yet converging on dialectical scales of analysis, Temporal dislocation enables reflection on how perspective authorizes perception. By moving among divergent modalities or timescales that don't take situatedness or individual perspective for granted, realist narrative becomes provocatively untimely. And this proceduralism has special re resonance for problems of the Anthropocene, because it allows for an exploration of historical knowledge's situatedness and vulnerability. And it does so even as it unsettles the centrality of the human individual within a history of living systems by, in Nersesian's words, refusing the license to place past, present, and future in a linear relation. For her, that's a poetic enterprise, though not necessarily so. And what if we read the poetics of narrative for its own untimeliness, which is, after all, central to the most recent defenses of realism? For instance, in a special issue of Novel of Forum on Fiction, Lauren Goodlad describes the form as, quote, both constitutively worlded in taking the material world for its premise, and worlding in making new ways of seeing, knowing, thinking, and being palpable to those worlds across the plural temporalities she claims are necessary for our own moment of thinking new lingerie. The journal issue cites geopolitical conditions of capitalism as the spur to this, the spur to this pluralism. 
occasionally mentioning climate change as a sort of secondary factor that might motivate a return to realism's flexible relationship with time. The rather offhand mentions of climate change seemed to me a lost opportunity, in that they imply a divide between the conditions of capitalism and natural conditions, the kind of divide that Jason W. Moore points out misreads economic activity as unnatural. So why not climate crisis? One might draw a somewhat complex answer from Alan Stobel, who notes a divide in academic discourse between how we talk about environmental crisis to how we talk about capitalism. He writes that though both the end of the world and the end of capitalism are hard to imagine, in the case of climate change, sublime awe takes over from comprehension. We experience the sublime, he says, as a kind of stunned relatedness, which would seem to be at odds with the second collectivizing impulse in Jameson's account of realism. But what about the eternal present? Would that have something to say to the temporality of this slow-moving apocalypse of climate crisis, as well as to our desire for a secure, unknown future? After all, to envision climate crisis is not necessarily to imagine the extinction of humanity as the end of the world. For Stoeckel, equating human extinction and apocalypse is perhaps the most anthropocentric gesture of all. And yet, for him, to avoid the absorptive nihilism of apocalyptic sublimity might mean learning to inhabit a post-sublime, mindless state of mind that allows for the subtractability of humans from the living world. Not unlike Narcessian, who tracks nescience or unknowingness as an ecologically sound perspective, Stoeckel hopes to extricate us from the individualist, rationalist, acquisitive understanding of consciousness that got us into this mess in the first place. By positioning an epistemic orientation as an answer to scale, these theorists get us back to something that looks recognizably like the terrain of realism in its commitment to attributing some function, however diminished in its grandeur, for human thought and action. The Stoeckel too cites science fiction as a genre capable of accommodating some of the alternative temporalities to the sublime, albeit not the ones he most favors. I'll turn shortly to how novelistic realism produces temporal dislocation through narrative perspective, expanding narrative time, and thus suggesting that dilation and expansion can, can make these incommensurate scales of experience at least somewhat accessible. Lengthy novels by 19th century writers are sometimes especially cited today for their capacity to think the social as a network. For Caroline Levine, for instance, individual characters are not so much, quote, powerful symbolic agents in their own right, but rather moments in which complex social forces and, I would add, material forces cross. Turning to the mid-19th century novel and its more recent descendants means examining not only highly critical depictions of capitalist production, but also forceful accounts of the implication of human bodies and the energy regime of the coal production that was changing England's landscape. Moreover, if we take such a realism, again, not as the deceptive reproduction of an anthropocentrically empirical world fitted to our desires, but a genre that reflects upon its own process of rendering perceptible, its capacity to inform our contemporary sense of anthropogenic climate disturbance without necessarily flattering our self-image becomes clearer. Jed Estes suggests that realism highlights, quote, interrelated and trackable links leading all the way from intimate life to world systems, disclosing connection rather than metaphorizing connectivity. And here he sounds like Shaw, who calls realism's relationship to history metonymic. Um, for Estes, this means offering an epistemologically grounded account of life inside the world system, rather than using an individual's consciousness primarily as a means of negatively allegorizing the system's indescribability, as in Lukash. And as he identifies Gauche, maybe not coincidentally, as one of world realism's new masters. A realist novel, then, might demonstrate a durable commitment to the scale of human consciousness, and yet its investment in doing so is far more tentative and less exclusive than we might previously have imagined. 
This is part two, the mill and the floss. The mill and the floss is a powerful example of how realist narrative compasses the excessive event. Set in the 1820s, the novel takes as its backdrop the entry of industry into the peasant life of the English Midlands, and it thematizes the production of historical knowledge alongside the likelihood of a damaged future, not least because of its um, rejection of, of the marriage plot. It depicts the stunted coming of age of the young Maggie Kelleher, who's bound by old-fashioned social convention that cannot accommodate her modern desires, culminating with her untimely death in the flood, a catastrophic event that has sometimes been interpreted as moving beyond the empiricist theory of realism or resisting employment. Whereas Eliot's narrator is critical of the way the people of the town of St. Ogg's see the present time as, quote, a level plane where men lose their belief in volcanoes and earthquakes, thinking tomorrow will be as yesterday, and the giant forces that used to shake the earth are forever laid to sleep, the novel insists upon the extreme event. If Eliot suggests that there may be no single adequate explanation for or consciousness that can fully encompass awareness of vast environmental destruction, I'll argue that the novel's manipulations of temporal consciousness still evoke the process by which historical knowledge of environmental precariousness can be produced. The Foss River is central to the economy of the town of St. Ogg's. Its local legend features rescue from the waters, and Eliot did substantial research into riparian records and flood histories in crafting the novel's conclusion. Moreover, the novel depicts the river as central to the town's cultural and economic transition into modernity. Maggie's life is shaped by her father's dimly understood legal fight to retain water rights for the mill that has been in his family at least three generations, though tellingly, the mill itself is rather new, the previous edifice having been damaged by the last great floods. Tellever's refrain that this affair of water power has been a tangled business somehow unwittingly seems to evoke the environmental and financial entanglements of the larger community and even nation. When Mr. Tellever fails to win his water rights lawsuit, partly due to his inability to understand the law's complexity, the mill is purchased by a lawyer-helmed company that hopes to convert the mill to coal-driven steam power. And Maggie is courted by two men who represent, among other things, these new energy regimes, Philip, the lawyer's son, and Stephen Guest, whose new money father owns, quote, a great mill-owning ship-owning business involving linseed oil trade from Russia. The opening of the novel, though, is famous for its dreamlike tone. Plus often remarked is that it depicts a slow, unnoticed shift in the small community's changing relation to energy regimes. Also notable is that the novel seems to open twice. The first chapter, in the first person, emphasizes sensation, memory, and situated firsthand experience, turning memory into the eternal present, while the second chapter moves to the third person, offering an omniscient perspective that chronicles the particular lives of individual characters in the long scope of geological, biological, and cultural history. The two beginnings raise the question of how the first perspective emphasizing sensations and emotions, might produce or inform the production of systems-level knowledge. The first chapter's opening forestalls the work of systems thinking with a plenitude of passive, streamy sensation that emphasizes slowness, the dilation of time into an endless presence of unchanging satisfaction. The unnamed narrator is asleep and dreaming. He dreams of a wide plain where the broadening floss hurries on between its green banks to the sea, and the loving tide rushing to meet it checks its passage with an impetuous embrace. On this mighty tide, the black ships, laden with the fresh-scented fir planks, with rounded sacks of oil-bearing seed, or with the dark glitter of coal, are borne along to the town of St. Ogg's. The distant ships seem to be lifting their masts and stretching their red-brown sails close among the branches of the spreading ash. Just by the red roof of town, the tributary ripple flows with a lively current into the floss. How lovely the little river is, with its dark, changing wavelets, 
It seems to me like a living companion while I wander along the bank and listen to its low, placid voice, as to the voice of one who's deaf and loving. I remember those dipping willows. I remember the stone bridge. When the rushing tide of the sea checks the hurried motion of the floss, active anthropomorphic verbs give way to the passive depiction of dark ships that are born along the river. The anonymous narrator uses a language imbued with affection and humane energy. As loving tide meets the river's impetuous embrace, the human onlooker becomes nearly absorbed into an effectively charged inhuman landscape. Easy to overlook, I think, is the presence of the coal ships, which initially seem to matter only as further sensations of glistening light and heady scent. The passage presents the dream as allowing personal, total, immersive return to a familiar landscape that has remained essentially unchanged despite the passage of time. Implicitly, this story seems only narratable from within, for the narrator tells us a bit later that early impressions are, quote, the mother tongue of our imagination, the language that is laden with all the subtle and inextricable associations the fleeting hours of our child would have left behind him. Yet this situated narrator gives way to one who stabilizes in chapter two and beyond and renounces the immersive present of memory for the most part. This narrator presents a too narrow historical scope as a problem in St. Oz, a town that, quote, did not look extensively before or after. It inherited a long past without thinking of it and had no eyes for the spirits that walked the streets. This, in fact, has a proto-ecological dimension because Eliot implies that the static culture of St. Oz comes from the flat and level plane of the town and its environs, as Eliot Buckman points out. In contrast, teenage Maggie likes to linger on a riverbank reshaped by anthropogenic change, quote, broken into very capricious hollows and mounds by the working of an exhausted stone quarry, so long exhausted that both mounds and hollows were now clothed with brambles and trees. It's a space that both evokes Maggie's inward personal depths and a need for historical perspective better acquainted with longer spans of time. And although the narrator of the first chapter is clearly a local, the narrative voice throughout the rest of the novel offers the chronicler's synoptic perspective informed by natural history and sociology that sees the town as, quote, one of those old, old towns which impress one as a continuation and outgrowth of nature, as much as the nests of the bower birds or the winding galleries of the white ants, a town which carries the traces of long growth, a history like a millennial tree, and has sprung up and developed in the same spot between the river and the low hill from the time when Roman legions turned their backs on it from the camp on the hillside, and the long-haired sea kings came up the river and looked with fierce eyes at the fatness of the land. Now, the narrator notes, quaint gabled houses are, quote, jammed between newer warehouses. Change accelerates, even as the everyday lives of Maggie's family members don't necessarily register it. As Jesse O. Taylor puts it, Elliot dramatizes the work of realist fiction and accounting for the banality of the Anthropocene. A similarly oriented set piece midway through the novel both anticipates the constantly foreshadowed final crisis and speaks more broadly to the significant role of temporal dislocation in the novel. Although much of the novel is intimately attentive to Maggie and her brother Tom's emotions, this passage takes a far more distanced view of their cultural and historical moment. It depicts a grand scene of destruction from the perspective of a cosmopolitan, sociologically oriented observer dislocated from the spaces he or she visits as they contrast the banks of the Rhine and Rhone rivers. At the beginning of the fourth book, Elliot's narrator describes a grand sweep of cultural and biological change. And apologies for the length of this quotation, just part of which I put on the slide, but I think it's longness actually matters. Journeying down the road on a summer's day, you have perhaps felt the sunshine made dreary by those ruined villages which stud the banks in certain parts of its course, telling how the swift river once rose like an angry destroying god, sweeping down the people generations whose breath is in their nostrils and making their dwellings a desolation. 
strange contrast, you may have thought, between the effect produced on us by these dismal remnants of commonplace houses, which in their best days would have assigned a sordid life, belonging in all its details to our own vulgar era, and the effect produced by those ruins on the castle Rhine, which have crumpled and mellowed into such harmony with the green and rocky seats that they seem to have a natural fitness. But these dent-tinted, hollow-eyed, angular skeletons of villages on the Rhone oppress me with the feeling that human life, very much of it, is a narrow, ugly, groveling existence in which even calamity does not elevate, but rather tends to exhibit knowledge bare vulgarity of conception. And I have a cruel conviction that the lives these ruins are the traces of were part of a gross sum of obscure vitality that will be swept into the same oblivion with the generations of ants and beavers. The length of the sentences alone, I think, starts to get at that, and that sort of duration that Elliot is interested in tracking here. The narrator then turns to the, quote, Emmett-like Tullivers themselves to be swept into oblivion, an analogy that renders cruel our investment in Maggie's fate against the perspective that would lump individuals into a gross sum of obscure vitality. The narrator remarks, finally, in natural science, I have understood, there's nothing petty to the mind that has a large vision of relations into which every single object suggests a vast sum of conditions. It is surely the same with the observation of human life. Here, Eliot's practice of the seemingly empirical and yet objective observation of human life involves juxtaposing the con contingency of an individual life against a more speculative and vaster temporal scale. Jameson's two impulses lie here. Eliot's attempt to grapple with mass extinction doesn't shy away from the implications for an entirely different future tentatively offered by a larger vision. Although she displays the demands of the present through Maggie's tragedy, she also invokes the longer durée of collective fate. To reconcile narrative impulses is to, to dwell on the present or to predict fate may not be fully possible, but to oscillate between them means to reject a stably anthropocentric standpoint. And to make this, this gesture, Eliot also calls attention to the text's own manipulation of temporal perspective. Although the passage displays a lofty historical vantage, the kind of standpoint for which Eliot is either famous or infamous, depending on her review, it's not omniscient in the sense of unlike all knowingness. Rather, this is one of a few key moments in the novel when Eliot's third-person narrator becomes a first-person voice, addressing readers and imagined as particular finite individuals. Unlike the novel's lowly characters, both narrator and implied reader are privileged, worldly, well-traveled, and knowledgeable. The sentences which most insist upon the need for an abstract systems-level view of biological life are also those which emphasize the situated first-person standpoint. By saying, I have understood, and surely, Eliot's narrator evokes groping toward confidence that might be required in order to posit a network that connects the fate of objects to conditions. Thus, Eliot's strategy here is procedural, calling attention to the temporal unfolding of the mental processes necessary to make a claim for historical death. Eliot stresses cognitive procedures, especially when making the claims that most significantly decenter the agency of individual human actors. The passage's status as a long set piece that dislocates the primary plot underlines this proceduralism by calling attention to and slowing the time of reading itself. And this untimeliness significantly influences how the novel's conclusion may be understood. The flood that kills Maggie is often retreated symbolically, as the overflow <coughs> of Maggie's stifled futureless emotions, resulting in an excessive, shocking plot event as an objective correlative for these feelings. And this, this may be partly the case. Many of the novel's first readers certainly found it jarring, and critics still typically feel obligated to account for how it seems to overdetermine everything that came before, for how it fits in the human scale of meaning. However, the novel hardly suggests that this uncanny event must stand on its own as an unpredictable or outsized catastrophe, especially given how many hints 
at the local history of flooding for the novel. And although the ants and beavers passage I just discussed allows for the possibility of reading the flood as an utterly unknown <coughs> event, evoking a clash between the scale of individual human feeling and conditions of possibility for collective survival, Elliot also suggests that this event may be partly the result of anthropogenic conditions, caused in part by irrigation dams built by Mr. Tulliver's legal antagonists that burst when waters rise due to extended rains. Buckland argues that because there's no full explanation for the flood, the mill on the floss connotes the difficulty of ever knowing the natural world outside one's own limited horizons, even the more expansive but still limited horizons of a seemingly omniscient narrator. I'm not sure, given even the word difficulty, that this has to be a problem. The narrative continues to work to come to terms, and also to highlight where no comfortable terms are possible. In the concluding chapter, the narrator initially offers a kind of human-centered optimism. Elliot writes, Nature prepares her ravages, and I've given you an image of Maggie and Tom sort of struggling in, in their, their final um, moments. Elliot writes, nature repairs her ravages, repairs them with her sunshine and with human labor. The desolation wrought by that flood has left little visible trace on the face of the earth five years after. The fifth autumn was rich in golden corn stacks, wharves and warehouses on the floss were busy again with echoes of eager voices, with hopeful leading and unleading. Nonetheless, the way this conclusion unfolds temporarily means that it dislocates the present from collective faith, because two paragraphs later, Elliot returns to insist upon the destroyed present as what is made perceptible only by a historically situated viewpoint. Nature repairs her ravages, but not all. The upturned trees are not rooted again. The parted hills are left scarred. If there is a new growth, the trees are not the same as the old. Through the eyes that have dwelt on the past, there is no thorough repair. That by doubling back upon itself and into the present tense, dwelling in a moment that would seem to be part of the past rather than the booming agribusiness future, the novel's conclusion suggests that a historical advantage allows a progressive reading of human fates expanding the moment of narration against the forward reach of human-centered optimism, Elliot validates narrative time to offer a vantage on a less human-centered history. So now I'm going to talk about The Hungry Tide, where these strategies and related ones remain powerful in a much more recent representation of climate catastrophe. In The Great Derangement, Ghosh notes that climate crisis occurs only obliquely in his own fiction, though it's closest to the surface in, in this novel. Set in the Sundarbans region on the India-Bangladesh border in the present day, a place that he says evidences our substantially altered world, this novel critiques a first-world environmentalism that separates humans and nature and insists upon the region's multiple entwined histories. The plot brings together an upper-caste Bengali translator, Kanai, an Indian-American cetologist on a research trip to Pia, and the local fisherman, Fakir, who serves as her guide as they search for river dolphins, a population under threat, and ultimately they attempt to weather a hurricane. The novel's orientation toward climate crisis is indeed subtle, but it's ever-present. The storms that threaten the region are, as in the Nolan historically precedented, and yet, um, the translator's uncle, Nirmal, a transplant to the region, alludes to the ways that, in which the Sundarbans are ineluctably changing. He writes, using a very proleptic metaphor, he's, he's writing in the 70s, he writes, the nearby islands are sliding beneath the water, and soon, like icebergs in a polar sea, they will be mostly hidden. And Pia observes the catastrophic diminishment of the dolphin river population. When Kanai asks why the dolphins are disappearing, Pia implies, replies, where do I begin? Let's not go down that route or we'll end up in tears. The novel also indirectly represents a 1979 conflict and its aftermath in which refugees were violently expelled from the island of Marijanpi to make room for a tiger preserve secured by first world donors. 
This conflict is primarily narrated by a diary kept by Nirmal when he visits the island and finds himself captivated by the efforts of refugees to build a space of their own. Crucially, within this diary, the person who most sharply articulates the environmental pressures in the region is a young subaltern woman, Vicar's mother, who articulates a clear-eyed sense of the dehumanizing effects of Western cosmopolitan environmentalism. Stressing the conflict between human and animal dispossession, Ghosh highlights both the uneven effects of anthropogenic restructuring of the jungle, the price disproportionately paid by the poor, as well as the insight born of situated knowledge. So although backgrounding climate crisis as such, Ghosh's novel, its omniscient narrator, and its characters are explicitly concerned not only with how the syndromes are changing, but also the way the past contains a deep present. That's, that was backwards. How the present contains a deep past. Um, but that, you know, that's married. Um, early in the novel, the narrator provides snippets of social and ecological history of the region, complemented by the attempts of characters themselves to generate historical narratives. For this eutologist, Pia, the river dolphins she studies, are the living representatives of a long chain of evolutionary changes that centrally include anthropogenic ones, reflecting co-evolutionary pressures. But the character of Nirmal offers the most complex and most explicitly literary meditations on time scale in his diary, reproduced in the body of the novel Hungry Tide. For him, the idea of the deep past is fundamentally integrated with images of reading and especially of translation. Nirmal keeps a diary as a hybrid historical document kind of document that realism has associated with the authentic reproduction of written documents from Pamela forward, really. Nirmal's diary initially aims to just present facts about the Sundarbans, and it never totally renounces its commitment to faithful documentation from the historically lofted perspective of a bookish and conventionally well-informed cosmopolitan participant observer, and it contains many moments of historically-oriented synthesis but it also imposed other literary modes and temporalities, from Nirmal's own lyrical descriptions of landscape to excerpts from the poetry of Rilke. Knight, who's given this diary many years after his uncle's death, reads it in Bengali during the novel's present daytime, and along with him, but also not with him because it's translated. We, readers of English, experience this past unfold in the time of reading. So especially when a novel includes numerous forms of textual documentation, its temporality can move in many directions through its insistence on readerliness, dilating the present and representing numerous perspectives on the past by aligning multiple texts with divergent attitudes toward history. Moreover, the novel's conclusion gestures toward the possibility of rewriting and expanding the text when the original diary is destroyed in a hurricane and Kanai must reassemble it. Nirmal's wife, Nalima, requested Kanai that her own perspective be included. Warning, quote, the dreamers have everyone to speak for them, but those who are patient, who try to be strong and try to build things, no one ever sees any poetry in them. And perhaps this is a bid for the novel's own prose. This diary becomes the occasion for a literariness that includes but goes beyond the lyric moment, and it's associated with duration, historical vantage, and the possibility of ongoing collaborative change. But more needs to be said about both the role of the lyric within the realist text um, for Rilke's poems are one of the ways the novel highlights dilated time, and about the concept of translation, which the novel renders essential to ecological thinking. Nirmal punctuates his text with quotations from Rilke's genealogies, his constant touchstone. Ghosh presents the text of the poems themselves as multiply translated. Um, he primarily uses the 1977 English translation as well as quoting translations 
published in Bangla in the late 1960s, which are what Nirmal himself is mostly using. A particularly key quotation comes when Nirmal describes warning the young fakir of coming environmental metropolis. Nirmal asks fakir, sort of pedagogically, how long can this frail fence last against this monstrous appetites, the crabs and the tides, and the winds will not hear us? And as for the animals, they will not hear us either. Like Stokel, Nirmal seems to insist on the importance of imagining the contingency of human presence on Earth and the subtraction of our species from the environment. Why won't the Earth register our loss? Because of what the poet says, Nirmal responds. Because the animals, quote, already know by instinct we're not comfortably at home in our translated world, end quote. Proclus' text juxtaposes animal with human cognition, suggesting that animals at homeness in their world comes from their use of instinct, whereas humans experience a dislocation from the natural world figures the linguistic, rational activity of translation. Through Roca, Nirmal makes the transcendental homelessness sometimes associated with the novelistic subject into a matter of species difference in environmental precarity, as well as one of genre. Nirmal looks forward into the deep time of human extinction in three brief lyric lines themselves multiply translated. And whereas Kanai, who works as a successful translator, usually seems to believe that his linguistic abilities grant him godlike knowledge, Nirmal presents translation and the recombination of literary forms as evoking limitation. Kanai's own later shattering encounter with a tiger late in the novel would seem to re-echo Nirmal's insistence on an aporia or gap between human subjects and their environment especially the animal denizens, whose own epistemological frame the novel and Gosh more generally takes quite seriously. Language and translatedness here seems like a major limitation. Still, these lines give Nero's own text a distinctive rhythm at odds with the resolutely future-oriented apocalypticism that provokes his quotation. The Ropa excerpts always appear at the ends of chapters that provide sections of the diary. They function as something like the opposite of punctuated equilibria, absorptive non-events that shift the frame of perception around what has just been narrated, requiring a different pace and readerly orientation that marks a kind of knowing that takes lyric rather than narrative form and calls attention to the materiality of the text on the page as well as its translatedness. Dilating the time of reading rather than compressing it in synoptic historical perspective, these excerpts suggest the need for multiple epistemologies and temporalities of knowing, and especially of knowing the limits of what we know. With Feng Chia, I would argue that the interrupted experience of reading in this novel, produced by all of these multiple embedded diegetic modes, suggests that there's something deeper than the values of secular modernity according to which the cosmopolitan middle-class characters process their immediate perceptual experience. Although Nirmal weaves between literary modes, he's a historical materialist, attempting to account for a political struggle that he feels could happen nowhere else. His diary documents his transformation from the resolute secularity of traditional Marxism, where religion is simply false consciousness, to a more open-ended view that values myths local to the Sundarbans, myths that are printed in a verse form readable as both prose and poetry, and that depend upon both Hindu and Muslim words and traditions. Ultimately, he decides he's going to become a teacher in what appears to him as a utopian community in Mauritania, and he decides that he, he will teach that, quote, there's a lot in common between myth and geology. Look at the sides of their heroes, how immense they are, heavenly deities on the one hand, and on the other, titanic stirrings of the earth itself, both equally otherworldly, equally remote from us. Then here's the way in which the plots go round and round in both kinds of stories, so that every episode is both a beginning and an end, and every outcome leads to others. And then, of course, there's the scale of time. Yuga's an epics, Kali Yuga in the quaternary, and yet find this. In both, 
These vast durations are telescoped in such a way to permit the telling of a story. Benjamin Morgan has recently argued that geological scale in the Anthropocene becomes implicated with human meaning and value, which for him means that realism struggles to truly non-anthropocentrally make it perceptible, a variant on the anxieties of the Great Derangement. Indeed, in Bush's text, Merkel's evocation of these vast scales is very far from socially neutral. His own text doesn't itself perform mythic telescopings, but Ghosh makes clear that the character's awareness of the way textual forms reflect the physical forms of the earth both sharpens his commitment to the political uprising in Morajampi and shapes his own narrative, even as it constitutes a kind of translation between discourses, between geology and myth. This is not necessarily to say that the novel either succeeds or fails in reconciling epical, geological, or mythic time with the temporality of the individual life. Rather, we see the consequences of Mirmal's efforts to think and even teach this orientation toward the massive, imperceptible, and dispersed qualities of the Anthropocene from a situated perspective. Yes, his desire to think this way is partly a utopian fantasy, but it also constitutes an attempt to grapple with environmental conditions in the importantly indirect terms of translation. And meanwhile, he encounters numerous versions of the local syncretic Bondibi legend about a goddess's intervention in the forest. Many of the inhabitants of the Sunderbonds of the novel, Chia suggests, make sense of their precarity through myth that figures time's otherness as the power of gods and deities. The myth, ultimately advocated in the novel by Fakir and reflected in his fishing practices, shapes indigenous ecological sensibilities that complement or roughly translate to the evolutionary epistemology advocated by Pia and reflected in her GPS record, yet another of the novel's interwoven texts. By constellating multiple epistemologies of deep time, the novel may not suggest that anyone is adequate, yet it constantly asks how they gain from encounter with one another. Following Nermal's diary, we witness his efforts to reframe the legibility of a landscape from which he is initially alienated. For him, the jungle features a strangely compressed timescale as a result of its constitution as a system of flux, rather than a place unchanging and out of time. Toward the end of his engagement with the struggle at Morichampi, um, he writes, to me, a townsman, Thai country's jungle was an emptiness, a place where time stood still. I saw now that this was an illusion, but the, exactly the opposite was true. In other places, it took decades, even centuries, for a river to change course. It took an epic for an island to appear. But here, in the Thai country, transformation is the rule of life. Rivers stray from week to week, and islands are made and unmade at days. Could it be that the very rhythms of the earth are quickened here, so that they unfolded at an accelerated pace? Although seeming to collapse past and future into the overwhelmingly full present, the form of the passage itself, especially in its, its sort of finally setting on past tense, makes multiple temporalities unfold at once, as the force of myth and geology, which he's already registered, make themselves momentarily palpable. Kanani emulates his uncle when writing a final message to Pia, with whom he's fallen in love, despite her preference for Fakir, which she sees, who she sees somewhat questionably as a kind of indigenous folk ecologist. Reluctantly, Kanai presents her with his own translation of the Bonvivi myth as sung aloud by Fakir. But he also appends Milka's words in longer form and with much more direct effort of address than his uncle's selections. And this is the last thing. Look, he writes to, to Pian, we don't love like flowers with only one season behind us. When we love, a sap older than memory arises in our arms. Oh, girl, it's like this. Inside us, we haven't loved just someone in the future, but a fermenting tribe. Not just one child, but fathers cradled inside us like ruins of mountains, the dry riverbed of former mothers, yes. And all that soundless landscape under its clouded or clear destiny. Girl, all this came before you. 
embedding a poem eroticizing the long durée and a dry riverbed too soon to overflow. Along with a long rhyming ballad spoken and translated just pages before within the time of the novel's own receipt, an ancient myth and local history within one document embedded in a realist novel, the hungry, tide, the hungry Tide compiles or indexes many strategies available to living people that the realist novel allows to give form to reckoning with living as a species under threat as a lived experience. The novel's denouement involves a storm that threatens the lives of its diverse cast of characters, emphasizing common vulnerability without erasing distinction. In The Great Derangement, where Gauche expresses doubt about the power of realism to convey the excessive event, he recalls that the storm scenes of The Hungry Tide were, quote, extraordinarily difficult to write. In preparation for it, he says, I combed through a great deal of material on catastrophic waves, storm surges as well as tsunamis. In the process, as often happens in writing fiction, the plight of the book's characters as they faced the wave became frighteningly real. It's quite like Eliot researching Midland's floods. Yet, to focus on the events as such would be to de-emphasize the fate of the material texts that have made up so much of the novel's purported filler. Nermal's diary is ultimately washed away in the crisis of a fatal storm. It's a precious object, but it just floats away and then sinks in the space of a few lines. This happens even after the effects of time have worn away, or even before it reaches Kanai's hands. We're told at the beginning of the novel that in places there was much crossing out and filling in in the diary and the words often spilled into a thin margin. Despite the many layers of plastic, the paper was covered with damp spots. In some places, the ink had begun to fade. The destruction of this text in the storm, along with the destruction of, of Kanai's translation of the Bon Vivi myth, suggests the material fragility of the human voices that can bring historical perspective. Human narratives are only written and only endure under certain material, environmentally determined conditions, which can too easily not be met. And yet, they call in particular attentions to the efforts of cosmopolitan figures like Nirmal, and in the next generation, Kanai and Pia, to navigate this threatening and threatened space through these extremely fragile narratives. The novel especially attempts um, to make the world of the Sundarans perceptible to its global Anglophone audience. And just a few words by way of conclusion. I think to suggest that realism has an important place in rendering climate crisis perceptible but also in a more self-reflexive vein to commend the value of close-grained literary studies. We situate ourselves in relation to what exceeds us, to advocate small-scale reading, even of or in the face of large-scale phenomena. Realism can imagine a world by mobilizing over and across plural temporalities, in Goodblood's words, while retaining an ethical charge at the scale of human cognitive capacity. Jesse O. Taylor argues that George Eliot, quote, speaks to a dilemma at the heart of what it means to dwell on Earth as a species against the backdrop of deep time, and I think the same is true of Gauche. Both novelists consider the intimate fit between the individual human subject and place evoked by the idea of dwelling to have been interrupted by the very concept of species, which threatens to obviate the value of an individual's point of view. The two novels I've selected, though written at different moments in the Anthropocene, showcase realism's capacity to make crisis perceptible in the expanded present by inhabiting dislocated, dislocating and reflecting <laughs> upon multiple perspectives without disavowing a shared sense of history or giving up on the hope of a shared world. Thank you.